Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's get right to it here. He needs no introduction. Uh, Alan Greenspan is uh, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve System, and I think many of you know, uh, without question, his recent caution on uh, the economy, and yet everything has changed. Did you fall off your couch on Friday? Could you not play tennis Saturday morning? You were so shocked by the outcome in the United Kingdom? No, but I played terrible tennis. You played terrible tennis? (laughs) In in honor of... (laughs) <laughs> what was going on? Because you couldn't see the ball. Let me let me go to your book, The Age of Turbulence. Uh, there is an age of tur- turbulence right now. And I, I think of a chapter you had there on China, the choices that await China. What are the choices that await the United Kingdom and the new prime minister? Well, I think they obviously made a terrible mistake because they had presumed that if they were to have the referendum, that it would be a closed issue very quickly and that the political problems that they had internally as a consequence uh, of the minority that they thought uh, would be pushed aside. They were mistaken. The Prime Minister has lost his job. The Cabinet obviously is going to lose their job. Uh, It's a terrible outcome in all respects. It didn't have to happen. I always thought that the real problem in Europe Mm. was the euro which I've always thought was basically an unstable currency, can't exist permanently in the existing structure. It never entered my mind that sterling was an issue because it's a floating currency. And Britain was was in fairly good shape economically. If your attention is on Europe, what would you request from Chancellor Merkel and what would you request from Brussels? Well, I'm not in a position to, to request that. But we'd like to know. <laughs> no, I think what is... Uh, uh, let me start off with what I think ought to happen with respect to the euro. First of all, the euro is being pulled apart basically by the continued existence of Greece, Greece in, the, in the euro structure. Greece got in by mistake, or I should say uh, a, a miscalculation of some of the data they submitted purposes of entering the euro, it became very clear when the next government, Greek Greek government, showed up that the data which had been submitted were just not accurate. They have been a thorn in the side of the whole euro structure ever since. They they, They should never have been in the euro. They should get out as soon as possible if you want to sustain the fundamental euro structure. The, the difficulty of the euro is one we were all aware of very early on. Uh, I sat in on the early stages of the development of the new currency right. uh, before they had the name euro. The basic purpose was essentially to foster the question of uh, mm-hmm. European integration politically, not necessarily right. otherwise. Chairman, uh, Mr. Chairman, you said a little earlier, and you have said in the past, that the euro has become something of a failed experiment here. 
does that suggest that you think the British are right to be concerned about being in the European Union? Leave aside the damage that may be caused by leaving, but do you have any sympathy for the idea that they're better off outside? No, there's a fundamental difference between being in a structure where everybody is forced into the same currency, irrespective of differentials in culture, economic status, and a variety of other things. The, East, the EU is fundamentally a very good idea. It's a free zone. It's a free trade zone structure, which we need an awful lot of, so that the choice of Britain to stay in the EU and get out of the eurozone was, I thought, the most sensible action that could be taken. And Gordon Brown, who was instrumental in that decision, I think, uh, ought to be. Uh, distressed by what is going on, as I know it is. Well, the question comes up, if the Eurozone itself is failed experiment, and one of the problems they have is the lack of a fiscal authority, the only way they can get there is to centralize more power in Brussels, which is exactly what the United Kingdom doesn't want. Well, but the problem with the Euro isn't going to be solved by that. The problem with the, the euro is a much more fundamentally difficult one, which is, which is going to arise fairly surely. Let me suggest something which nobody discusses. Please. And uh, I think it ought to be discussed. If the Federal Reserve, or for example, I should say, uh, uh, if the Federal Reserve were to run into financial trouble uh, and the dollar were in very extreme case, the sovereign credit of the dollar back, I should say, which the Treasury Department would back up the Federal Reserve and there'd be no problem. There is no backup on the European Central Bank. Right. I mean, theoretically, the Maastricht Treaty has got means by which they would be financed if they got into trouble, but that's not going to work. That speaks to the fractious nature here, and it speaks to, I think, a Barry Green at Berkeley talking about the exorbitant privilege. Where's the leadership to drive a solution? We've been saying this now for four and five days. We remember Valerie Giscard d'Estaing, Charles de Gaulle, Adenauer of Germany, I believe a name Greenspan from the United States. Do you observe leaders that can make tough decisions as the acclaimed Chancellor Merkel has made? Well, yeah, I mean... Tony Blair and Gordon Brown made some. They're not in office right now. Do you no, see I was about to say right that, and I don't see anybody to match them. So the basic problem is, uh, it's very difficult for somebody from the United States, no longer in government. I don't have direct daily contact as I did for 20 years. You've not been speaking with Mr. Trump recently. Uh, no. <laughs> we, we may want to get back to that. We'll get back to that a little bit later. If you were still at the Fed and you go into your office at 20th and C Street on Friday, how do you think about it as a central banker? You lived through market meltdowns before. What's the first thing you do? What, do you, what kind of conditions within your bank do you try to establish? Well, the first thing I would ask is what is the cause of the problem? Trying to ameliorate the symptoms of the problem is never a successful course because it doesn't get at the root issue. Nobody is getting at the root issue that confronts uh, all of the developing world, which is, at the, which is the cause of the problem now because 
what is happening is productivity growth, as you know, for I think more than two-thirds of the OECD countries is, in fact, it's more than two-thirds, has been running at less than a half a percent per year for five years. That means incomes are stagnating. And you see that in real disposable income across England just like this? Absolutely. And you know what I'm about to say, this is a problem which is not strictly in the United States, right? but as, as I said, by all the OECD countries. And what that is doing is creating a general stagnation in the developed countries, uh, which is is causing desperation on the part of their electorate. I want to go to the economic point of the last number of days, people linking currency into interest rate, into inflation, into declining GDP, and it shows within a reduced current account deficit for the United Kingdom. And maybe you bring up the idea of a phrase from another time, twin deficits, greater fiscal deficit. Tell us your experience with a nation that has to work with a rapidly worsening current account deficit. Well, usually the problem uh, which you have is only two choices. One, you flood the particular problem with reserve balances of some form or another, irrespective of where it's coming from, or two, you allow the currencies to float. Uh, The first is is obviously a desirable one if it works, but it's a risky one. And you're always better off to allow the markets to run their course. In other words, free up the currencies, free up uh, very much the actions which would allow uh, uh, prices to move. If you try to stop prices, you're going to create huge problems. And that has always been my view as to what should be done. Is there a risk, though, in the U.K. situation to doing that when you have a 7% current account deficit? Uh, there's a risk in doing anything. The question is, what's the least worst risk? And what I is it right now? I would say uh, I, I wouldn't be that concerned about the currency because it's not all that much you're going to be able to do about it. The vulnerable institution right now is the Eurozone. Because, as I said before, there is no backup to the ECB yet. The European Central Bank assets, which had gotten up to a high level and then came all the way back down, has now come all the way back to the height of where they were. That raises a serious question is what happens? if all of a sudden the euro ceases to be a hard currency. It happens overnight. Uh, there'll be in very significant difficulty as far as I can see. And I think the thing to do is what they should have been doing a long time ago, get Greece out because they're, they're a toxic liability sitting in the middle of a very important economic... But, but is it just Greece, or would you have to get rid of Portugal, or maybe even Italy? I think it depends on them. In other words, theoretically, if you ask me what would the Eurozone basically exist of, uh, Germany, uh, and the Netherlands, uh, Finland, uh, 
all currencies, which the best way to put it is when a crisis happens, they all move together. Then are we seeing a death, forget about the European experiment of Monet's action, are we seeing a death of the Washington consensus here? The Atlantic Charter to President Bush Sr.'s work with GATT and trade, is, is this referendum the first signal of the death of your Washington consensus? Well, it's too soon to say, and incidentally, uh, death is too strong a word. It absolutely needs readjustment. I mean, the Eurozone cannot go on structurally the way it's put together. Now, it's fundamentally the northern states of the Eurozone funding the southern states. And uh, the result of that is uh, you have an unstable system which cannot go on indefinitely. And you need, if you're going to put more than one currency together, it has to have a similar culture. You cannot have differential cultures. Now, you know, the argument I used to get is that when the euro comes in, uh, the Italians would behave like Germans. They never did from day one. Is the United Kingdom a differential culture from Germany? Uh, most certainly, in the sense that the uh, United Kingdom is sort of, it's hard to define it. It's not, it's coming off of, of you know, generations of squeezing down from the British Empire. British Empire in 1913 was at its peak, mm-hmm. and uh, World War One did very great damage. World War Two obviously significant, and uh, were not for Margaret Thatcher coming in uh, uh, when she did, and do, did what she did. Uh, it wouldn't be in as good shape as it is today. And remember that when Labour came in after Thatcher. Uh, uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown didn't change anything what Thatcher did. What can the next president do to assist Europe with these immense challenges? Lord Brown of British Petroleum is adamant that the United Kingdom had to remain because of tensions from 70 years ago, the outcome of World War II. How can we assist Europe stay away from those primeval tensions? Uh... I wish I knew the answer to that question. We're dealing now in the very early days of a crisis, which has got a way to go. I mean, this is not, this is not, we've triggered a series of events here, which when Scotland Scotland goes, uh, Northern Ireland. Is, to be clear, you're predicting that Scotland, back to 17, I believe, 03, will leave the United Kingdom. Yes. And Northern Ireland as well? Well, Northern Ireland probably. See, you've got the same, not the same type of problem. Uh, remember, uh, Scotland wanted to become an independent nation because it had oil, all that oil in the North Sea. Right. By the time they finally got to the referendum, that the whole reserve was almost gone. It is gone now. Mm-hmm. So the economic problems that Scotland is going to run into when and if it, I say, when it moves, 
are going to be very difficult, I think, because they don't realize to the extent to which Whitehall is funding them. And it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of wrenching things that right. are going on. I want to tease forward to our next section. We've got about two more minutes here, Chairman, and we'll move on to more mundane ideas. Where are we in the debate, the battle of rules versus discretion? Give us an update on where that is as we prepare for our next discussion. I'd say that discretion has uh, won the day because every time you try to lock in some rules, uh, you get them locked in incorrectly because you can't anticipate how the market's going to behave. Well, there's still a movement on Capitol Hill to try to put the Federal Reserve into a rules-based procedure. What would happen if that were to pass? Well, we would find ourselves trying to support the currency in an unsupportable position. Is it the legislative version of going back on the gold standard? No, if we went back on the gold standard and we uh, adhered to the actual structure of the gold standard as it existed, say, prior to 1913, we'd be fine. Remember that the period 1870 to 1913 was one of the most progressive periods economically that we've had in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that was the golden period of, of the gold standard. Uh, so I think that it's, uh, I mean, I'm known as a <laughs> gold bug and everyone laughs at me. But uh, well, why do central banks own gold now? Why do? Well, we're going to come back on that. We could talk forever about this. Alan Greenspan, gold bug with us today. Mike, why don't you start with uh, Chairman Greenspan's thoughts on the why we're here? Well, that's an interesting question because uh, you have noted, and, and back in March when Tom and I last spoke with you, you noted at the time that there is something beyond the individual day-to-day -day news that we are watching. It's a deterioration in the standards of living that people have these days that is around the world. It's global, and that is leading to symptoms like what we're seeing in the United Kingdom that aren't the cause themselves. Well, I think the problems that we have, as I mentioned before, is the fact that, well, let's, let's you know, it's often useful to start with the uh, end result and go back causation in reverse. Uh, what we see is a desperate population out there, everywhere. We're seeing it in the United States. You can see it all during our election period. The, it's a fear. It's a desperation. They're looking for somebody to come and help them out. That is a similar, this is basically what Brexit has been all about. Uh, we're seeing it in Europe generally. And so the question is, why? Well, nobody wishes to discuss this because it's politically very difficult to discuss because nobody knows what to do about it. In the United States, uh, which is not by itself, by any means. In fact, the U.S. is better is best to talk about because our data system is better. But what I'm about to tell you exists pretty much throughout the developed world. And that is that as the populations age, 
and they all are now in their baby boom period and they're going into retirement. That is creating a major fiscal problem in all of these countries. And the issue is essentially that entitlements, which are, entitlements are legal issues. They have nothing to do with economics. You reach a certain age or you're ill or something of that nature, you're entitled to certain expenditures out of the budget without any reference to how it's going to be funded. Where the productivity levels are now, we're lucky to get something even close to 2% annual growth rate. And that annual growth rate of 2% is not right. adequate to finance the existing In your experience, can policymakers adjust productivity higher? No. Well, they can indirectly, I'm sorry. <coughs> if they were to slow down the rate of growth of entitlements and enabled, remember in what's happening, which is a remarkable statistic, for the United States, the sum of gross domestic savings plus entitlements as a percent of GDP is flat for a half century. That means that basically every dollar of entitlement crowds out, crowds out one dollar of mm -hmm. gross savings. Uh, the gross savings adjusted for the current account balance is what gross domestic investment is. But critically, your tenure shows, and I think of Tip O'Neill as well, Speaker O'Neill, nothing gets done without crisis. Do you just, does Alan Greenspan just wait for the next crisis before well, Capitol Hill does anything? I, I said in a, a book I finished recently, just, I don't know how it's going to resolve, but there's going to be a crisis. You said that in the last book. Well, I'm waiting. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. Well, these solutions come on the fiscal side. Yes. How? And it's not like people on Capitol Hill or people in Westminster don't know what to do. They don't want to do it. What's the communication? To, how do you tell them? How do you get through to them? about these issues. This is one of the great problems of democracy. Uh, and uh, it goes back to the founding fathers. How do you handle a situation like this? And it's very troublesome, but eventually you get things like Margaret Thatcher showing up in Britain. Their, their situation is far worse than ours. And what she did is she turned it all around essentially by, as I remember it, uh, uh, the, 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 the miners were, were going to strike, and she decided that she knew they were going to strike. Since at that point the government owned this, the coal mines, she built up a huge inventory so that when they went on strike, there was enough coal in Britain so that eventually the, uh, the, the whole union structure collapsed. That put her on a whole different, uh, she changed, she fundamentally changed Britain to this day. I mean, the fact that we're doing so well in the EU is not altogether clear that it is the EU or whether it was Margaret Thatcher. What, do we need then an accident of history? Uh, probably. I don't see because uh, in the United States, uh, 
social benefits, which is the more generic term, uh, or entitlements, um, are considered the third rail of American politics. You, you touch them and you, mm -hmm. and you lose. Now, that is a general view. The Republicans don't want to touch it. The Democrats don't want to touch it. Right. They don't even want to talk about it. This is what the election should be all about in the United States. You will never hear one no. word from either side. Alan Greenspan with us with Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television Worldwide. One, one question, if I may, to stay away from Fed policy. Negative interest rates, I don't believe they are in your textbook at NYU. We are learning about negative interest rates. What have you observed, and what will you, we see if we see even deeper negative interest rates in the coming months? Well, let's understand where negative interest rates come from. Uh, if you go back and look at the t period when, say, the U.S. 10-year note was 5% or thereabouts, or when uh, the normal relationship existed, negative rates would not exist. But if you take, for example, when they emerge, you have, uh, let's see, five, 10 years ago, the Swiss franc, uh, I should say, the yield on Swiss long-term debt uh, would be two, three, four hundred basis points under, for example, mm -hmm. Italy, Italy or other less desirable. Mm -hmm. And that spread would move up and down. And now it's broken. Well, no, it hasn't broken. What happened mm -hmm. is that if the overall rate comes down, then in order to keep that spread, the Swiss franc has to go negative. Yeah. And so that what you have well, is that uh, it can, now it, they're going to start. They're going to start to right. stock up on currency, yeah. and that's going to make a difference. We have run out of time. We could go forever, particularly on the United Kingdom. Alan Greenspan, thank you so much for joining us uh, today here on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Uh, Alan Greenspan on the United Kingdom and on our American economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.